Good morning. You can have a seat. Welcome to Soma Northwest. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we read our scripture and dive into our teaching this morning, I wanted to spend a few moments in prayer for um, a uh, church that we're connected to here in our state up in uh, northern Indiana. Uh, some of you may have seen this on social media, but a couple of weeks ago, um, one of uh, the friends of our church, uh, Pastor Kevin Galloway, who's the pastor of Christ Church up in Laporte, um, was killed in a car accident. Um, he was coming home early morning in, from Chicago and, um, and, yeah, just died in a tragic car accident. Uh, he had recently turned 50 years old, um, three children, wife. Um, Kevin was a big part of the church planning network that uh, Soma Church is a part of, Sojourn uh, Church Network. And so uh, just a month earlier, uh, my wife and I were sitting at a table at breakfast with Kevin and his wife and getting to know them, uh, talking with them. And so it's just one of those things where it's tragic and it's, it's um, a reminder of uh, our mortality. And um, I'm sure Kevin didn't wake up that morning uh, thinking that he would see Jesus face to face that morning. And so while he is in the presence of our Lord, uh, he also leaves behind a church and a family that is mourning and that is grieving uh, his loss. And while Kevin was a huge part of just shaping even our network of churches uh, around the country and, and um he was just at Soma uh, a few months ago helping to lead uh, some uh, prospective church planters and helping to train them um, as they are sent out around the country. Uh, a huge part of what God was doing and is doing uh, around the world here. Uh, we also want to grieve and to mourn as those who mourn and grieve with hope in knowing that uh, he is with the Father, that he is with Jesus, um, and that one day uh, those of us who know him, those of us who are friends with him, those who were led and shepherded by him and his wife and his children um, will spend eternity with him, uh, that we still grieve and we still mourn. And so would you just join me as we pray for Kevin's family, as we pray for his church community uh, in the days and in the weeks, even as they meet this morning and worship um, and, and praise God uh, in the midst of their mourning. Lord, we hate death. We hate the fact that we live every moment of every day with the reality uh, of sin and with the reality of death. And Lord, we grieve this morning with our brothers and sisters we grieve with Kevin's wife and his three children. We pray your comfort for them. Uh, we pray that as they experience days without their husband, um, holidays without their father, as their church community worships on Sundays and meets in homes and ministers in the community without one of their pastors. 
we pray your peace. And we pray that you would, um, in the coming days and weeks and months and years, that you would bind up the brokenhearted. Pray that you would be present in a very real way to those who Kevin loved and ministered to and spent time with. Um, we pray that his absence and even the, just the celebration of his life, that that would be a light in the community where he lived and, and ministered. We pray even that you would bring people to yourself who knew Kevin or even folks who didn't know Kevin but have the blessing of experiencing what he was a part of. Lord, we ask that in these moments um, that you would help us and that you would help those in his church and in his family to cling tightly to you, to know that while we hate death and it's just, it's something that you didn't intend. And it's something that you are working against and it's something that one day uh, we will not experience because you have already defeated it. And I pray that as we mourn, as they mourn, that we would do that with hope in knowing that you are making all things new and that one day we will be with you and you will wipe away every tear um, because death will be no more. And we long for that. This world longs for that. And so we pray for Davina, we pray for Kevin's children, we pray for his church community this morning. And we pray that you would be in their midst and that you would comfort them. In Jesus' name, amen. Kathy, would you come and read our scripture this morning? Good morning. My name's Kathy Gilbert. Uh, I'm a covenant member, is that what I say? I've been around for a thousand years, so... <laughs> Just so you know, it's been a long time. I, we were laughing earlier. Uh, there was a point in time where Marvin and I uh, were the only two gray-haired people uh, in Soma, and that's been quite a while ago. But what a blessing it has been. My excuse me, my faith has grown immeasurably since uh, we became part of Soma and have experienced you know, our being with you and you being with us. So I sincerely hope that that will be a blessing for each of you. As time goes on, and you are with the people who are here as, as our whole group, of course, citywide. Um, this morning, I'm going to be reading from Exodus 11 uh, through 1214, and it's on page 31 in the, uh, the, the little blue Bibles that are on some of the chairs. And if you need one, just hold your hand up, and somebody will get you one. But uh, these are the words of God. These are the true words of God. And he's my God, and he's your God. So let's go from there. Now, the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. 
So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before, the, before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat meat, eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Thanks, Kathy. So over the last few months, we have been looking through the book of Exodus, reading this story 
building up to this moment. Everything that we've read up to this moment has pointed us here, has pointed us in this direction. This is a watershed moment for the people of God, the Israelites. God was doing something here that he had been promising to do for quite a while now. He had raised up Moses and his brother Aaron to do what he is going to do here in this moment. And as we just heard, it was a moment that God wanted his people to remember, to not forget for generation after generation after generation. This was supposed to be a mile marker, something that they could look back to and something that they needed to look back to over and over and over again. And I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about remembering and forgetting and remembering and forgetting. And it kind of struck me that I feel like things are getting more and more forgettable in our life. It's so much easier today to forget because everything is always new. The pace of change is so fast. Something comes and it's like, I mean, just think about the last few, few years. Think about it in terms of movies. Think about this, you know, the Infinity Wars movies that, that have come out and how epic those things are. And just in a few months, something else will come out. And we'll forget about how epic these movies were. Think about songs. Think about the songs that we listen to. How many of these songs will be iconic 20, 30, 40 years from now? Will we have stations that play music 50 years from now, from today? It will, what are these things that we often look at and we think, man, we could never forget this. These moments in our personal lives, these moments that we experience as a community, these moments even just in our country where we say we're never going to forget these things. We're always going to remember these things. But how quickly do we forget? Sometimes we don't mean to forget. We're not trying to forget. It just happens. Sometimes we are trying to forget. Sometimes we are trying to move on to the next thing. And what we're going to see this morning as we work back through this passage that we just listened to is that we are going to see that what God is doing here is unbelievably significant, not just for the moment, but for generations to come. It's significant for us today. We're going to see why God wanted his people, Israel, to never forget this moment as they looked into the future, and as they lived in their present. And we're going to see why that's the same for us today. And so let's look back through this passage, starting at the beginning of chapter 11. We've been taking our time through this story. We've been looking forward, in a sense, to God's judgment of Pharaoh, God's judgment on the nation of Egypt. We've been 
looking at the fact and, 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 and seeing and sitting in the fact that God's people have experienced over 400 years of slavery and oppression, injustice. And two weeks ago, when we were in the text, we saw that the first nine acts of judgment or the plagues were leading to this one. And so we pick it back up in chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women are alike, alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. God told Moses at the very beginning, when he first called him, that this is what he was going to do. Back in chapter 4 of Exodus, as God is saying, go to Pharaoh, perform all the signs, all the wonders, the things that I have told you to perform before him. Make sure that you do all of those things and tell Pharaoh that this is what's going to happen. This is what I am going to do because Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. God's people who he called his firstborn son. God promised that he would kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. It's a hard thing to hear. That's a hard thing to read. It's a hard thing to reconcile God's judgment. But if you remember a few weeks ago when we worked through these first nine plagues, what did we see? We saw that over and over again, God showed patience to Pharaoh. Over and over again, God gave Pharaoh an opportunity to repent, to turn back, to acknowledge that this God, the God of Israel, the God of the people that he enslaved, was the true God to let his people go, his firstborn son go Over and over, God showed patience. God showed mercy to Pharaoh. And if you remember in chapter 9, God even told Pharaoh, I could have wiped you out like that. With one act, I could have demolished the entire land of Egypt. I could have wiped you off the face of the earth, but I haven't. I haven't up to this point. And I have given you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. But what did Pharaoh do? Over and over again, he hardened his heart. And eventually God gave him over to that hardness and said, is this what you want? Then this is what you have. Then this is what you have. And Moses puts these two truths here in this story side by side. And he doesn't try to explain them. He doesn't try to rationalize them. He just tells his reader that God is patient and merciful. And yet at the same time, God will judge hard and stubborn hearts that stand against him and his plan for the flourishing of his people. Moses doesn't try to explain these things. He doesn't try to make sense of them. He just writes it into this story and leaves it there for us to wrestle with, for us to hold in tension. Because we have to remember that God is revealing himself in what he is doing. He is telling the world 
something about himself. He is telling his people Israel something about their God, who he is, who they are to him, showing them what he can do. Look in verse 4 of chapter 11. So Moses said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the first Born son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the male slave, female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then, Moses says, you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Here's why this final act of judgment is different from all the rest. Each time God had sent a plague, what happened? Ravished the land of Egypt. It was was those plagues, if you remember, built from just being kind of annoyances, you know, frogs everywhere and like gnats and locusts and to just to being plagues that were really chaotic and destructive on the land. And each time, what happened? Pharaoh would eventually call Moses and Aaron back in, and he would say, make it stop. If you make it stop, then I'll I'll give you what you want. I'll let the people go. I'll listen to God. Just make these things stop. And each time, Moses relented. Moses mediated on Pharaoh's behalf, and the plagues and these acts of judgment stopped. But then Pharaoh would harden his heart again. He would harden his heart before the Lord again. Moses and Aaron, each of these times, had acted as an intermediary between Pharaoh and God. But here it was different. It would be different. God will not reverse this act of judgment. There's no hope for relief. That word that's translated there, uh, that God says, I will go throughout Egypt. I will go out through Egypt. It's the same Hebrew word, the same verb that is used back in the, back in the book of Genesis. When Joseph, if you remember, Joseph came to Egypt and God rose Joseph up through the ranks of Egypt and eventually a different Pharaoh years before, acknowledged that Joseph was special, that God's hand was on Joseph, and that he needed to listen to Joseph. And he put Joseph in power over all the land of Egypt. And in chapter 41 of Genesis, it says that after Pharaoh commissioned him, that Joseph went throughout the land with absolute power and absolute authority. God is telling Pharaoh, I will go throughout your land with absolute power, with absolute authority over life and death. Up to this point, Moses has stood between you and me. And right now, you will deal with me directly. God is saying here, I myself will go throughout Egypt. This is a personal, direct act of judgment. This is God taking control. 
This is God exercising his authority over life and death. This is God exposing Pharaoh's perceived deity, Pharaoh's perceived power as a fraud. Here, Egypt faces the judgment of God because of their idolatry, because of their injustice, their enslavement of God's people. They were coming face to face with the holy and just presence of God himself. But don't miss this. So was Israel. So was Israel. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will You see, up to this point, Israel had been spared from the effects of God's judgment on Egypt. Moses and Aaron had not only mediated between God and Egypt, but God and Israel. Israel didn't have to do anything up to this point to separate themselves from what God was doing in Egypt. God had spared them, but during this last act, the one that will free them from Pharaoh's control, the one that they had anticipated, the one that they had longed for, the one that they had cried out to God to bring, to free them from Pharaoh's control and their slavery. During this one act, it appears that they aren't safe either. That they aren't safe either. So God told them, here's what you have to do. I am getting ready to pass through the land, and here's what you have to do. Why? Why was this necessary for them? Why was this Passover preparation necessary for God's people? Because when God's presence passes through Egypt, Israel's problem was no longer, how do we escape Pharaoh? It's how do we escape God? How do we stand in the presence of of God. How are we safe with our God? God again was showing his people something here. He was not only, remember, he was not only delivering them from bondage in Egypt, but he was delivering them to himself, to be his people, to worship him, to serve him, to have a new life in a new land with him to live in relationship with him. And what God is telling his people here is this reality, the reality that they would have to live with in this new life with him, that humanity, unprotected, uncovered, can't be in the presence of God. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. And even his people, 
his people who he loved, his people who he was delivering out of slavery and into a new life weren't safe with him yet. He told Moses to tell the people, this is supposed to be your first month. This is supposed to be the first month of a new year. What does that tell you? It's a new beginning. It's a new start. God told his people, at this point, life changes for you. At this point, your life is different. Your reality is different. Your identity is different. This is a new start. This is a new beginning. And that's why these things here are significant. So let's work down this for a second. Moses, through God through Moses, tells the people that they are to take an unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb, a lamb that is acceptable to God, a perfect lamb for a perfect God. The exactitude, the specificity that God makes with these preparations that they are supposed to prepare this lamb in a certain way. They're supposed to cook it in a certain way. They're supposed to dispose of the remains in a certain way. All of these things, God is providing covering for each specific Israelite. No more and no less. The removal, if we read on in chapter 12, we didn't read this at the beginning. You will see, or I'm sorry, we did read it um, in verse 8, that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. They're supposed to remove the yeast from their house. Bread made without yeast. Yeast, I didn't know this until I read this. Uh, I'm not a bread maker. Tom can help us. He's a bread maker. Um, yeast, the thing that, that the leaven that makes the, the bread rise and kind of puff up that it's taken from a piece of leftover bread, the bread that's left over from a previous batch. God says, don't use that leaven. Remove it. Eat unleavened bread. Don't cling to anything from the past. Move on to something new, new bread, symbolizing new way of life, leaving behind the old way of life. But the striking and most essential part of these instructions was the blood. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. When I see the blood. Not when I see all of your preparations. Not when I see the way that you cook and the way that you bake and the way that you eat and the way that you dress and are ready to go. But when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
God was coming through with judgment. The blood satisfied God's justice. The Egyptians weren't safe. The Israelites weren't safe in God's presence. But the blood guaranteed their safety. Israel had been slaves for 430 years. But the moment that blood went on their door, they were as good as free. They were freed. They were freed because of the blood. That's why they were able to eat with their sandals on, with their cloaks tucked in, with their staff in their hand, because they were as good as gone. They hadn't left yet, but God was saying, you are free now. When you put that blood on your door, you can eat in freedom because you're ready to go. I've already delivered you. I've already taken you out. Read through the end of chapters 12 and you'll see that all of these things happened exactly the way that God said they would. They happened exactly the way that God said they would. And in verse 14, God says, This is a day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For generations to come, God wanted the people of Israel to remember this moment. To remember that their life had come through death. God judged Egypt by bringing death to each household. But death was in the Israelite households as well. It wasn't a man or a woman or a boy, or a girl. It was that lamb. That lamb was their substitute. They would have died, except for the lamb. Moses wrote Exodus, the way that he wrote it, to develop Israel's collective consciousness to help them understand as they would read this book for generations and generations, to help them understand who their God was, to help them understand themselves about God's plan, what he was doing in this world. And much of what we read here in Exodus and what we're going to continue to read in the weeks to come is a shadow of things that will come throughout the story of the Bible down through the generations of the Old Testament, as the people of God commemorated their deliverance from Egypt, out of slavery and into a new life, worshiping God, life with God under His rule, God was preparing them for what was to come. We have the benefit, because we have it all right here, to be able to read back into this story. But for them, as they celebrated this Passover feast every year, as they They commemorated this moment in their history. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. You see writer after writer saying, remember, remember when God brought you out of Egypt. Remember when God delivered you from Pharaoh. Remember when you were once slaves and now you're not. The minds and the hearts are continually pointed back to this. But God was preparing them for what was to come. 
And you can't read this story, can you? You can't listen to these things, the lamb and the sacrifice and the blood without hearing the name of Jesus. You can't read this without hearing the words of John the Baptist when he first saw Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what God was preparing for his people. Thousands of years later, Jesus' blood satisfies God's judgment. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us since we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Jesus' blood covers us completely. The words of Paul again in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange here that God perfectly covers us in righteousness. That when God sees us, he sees the blood. He sees Jesus' perfection. He sees Jesus' righteousness because Jesus took all of our unrighteousness and he took all of our sin. Jesus' blood redeems us from slavery to sin. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And Jesus' blood redeems us to a relationship with God in worship. The writer of Hebrews chapter 9 wrote, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished, perfect to God. Cleanse our consciousness, our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Jesus' blood satisfies God's judgment. Jesus' blood covers us completely. Jesus' blood redeems us from slavery to sin. Jesus' blood redeems us to a relationship with God in worship. That's why we sing about the blood. That's why we talk about the blood. That's why each week we drink juice that symbolizes the blood of Jesus. It's not because we're crazy or weird that we talk about blood. It's because blood was necessary. Death was necessary so that we could have life. There's power in ritual. Ritual can help us remember what we're prone to forget. Ritual can reaffirm our identity. And as the people of God, the identity that we have been given through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is constantly under assault. The enemy of God has waged a disinformation campaign from the beginning. Did 
God really say? Does God really care? Did Jesus' death really do that? Just like Israel needed reminding generation after generation of God's deliverance from slavery and God's deliverance to a new life with him, we do too. We are being shaped and formed every moment of every day. The world, our flesh, the devil are actively seeking to shape our desires, our affections, our identity. That's why we must remind ourselves as often as we can who God is, who we are, and what is God is doing in this world. And that is why every week, that's why every week when we come together, when we gather together from being scattered throughout our neighborhoods, throughout this city, in our different lives, in our different vocations, in the different responsibilities and relationships that God has given us, when we come together as a community of faith, that's why we remember and that's why we proclaim. We remember and proclaim that it's not just people out there who deserve God's justice. You and I deserve God's justice. We remember and proclaim that when God looks at you and when he looks at me, he doesn't see our sins. He doesn't see our guilt. He sees the blood. We remember and we proclaim that we are children of God who are deeply, deeply loved beyond what we deserve or could ever imagine. We remember and we proclaim that God who started the work of transformation will continue it and will complete it. He will never give up. He will never quit. He will never get bored. He will never get tired. He will never get discouraged. He will never be disappointed. We remember and we proclaim that we have been called into a life with God under the rule of God. Each week, as we read the words on the screen, as we sing our songs, as we listen to the teaching and we read the scriptures, as we take the bread and we dip it in the juice, we remember and proclaim that Jesus Christ has died, that Jesus Christ has risen, and that Jesus Christ is coming back again. We remember the gospel. The gospel, the good news, is at the center of who we are individually and as a people. This is what God has done in Jesus for us. And this is what God is doing and will continue to do until the day of Jesus' return. And just like the Israelites, we eat this meal with our cloaks tucked in, with our sandals on, with our staff in our hand, because we know that Jesus is coming back. We know that he hasn't given up. We know that he is making all things new. This is who we are. 
this is who we are becoming. And so I want to encourage you this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus through faith, if you have believed on Jesus, if the things that we have said here, if this is where your hope lies, if this is where your identity is, to come and to do this, to take a piece of the bread, to dip it in the juice. We will have stations here and here and one in the back. And as you do that, remember. Remember the body of Jesus that was broken for you. Remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. Remember that this is how much God loves you. And proclaim it to each other. And never stop proclaiming it to each other. This is who we are. And I want to invite you to come and to take that this morning. Pray with me before we do that. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that in your love you have chosen us. In your love you have delivered us. In your love, you have redeemed us. In your love, you are transforming us. All of these things are promises that we hold to be true. This is who we are. This is who you are. And Lord, I pray that as we come here and we take this bread and we take this juice, that we would remember it that we would proclaim it, that we would understand that you have overcome the world. You have overcome our hearts when our hearts condemn us, when we feel unloved, when we feel that you're distant, when we feel our guilt and our shame, that you are greater than our hearts. We thank you that you have showed us and you have given us a love that drives away fear. And I pray that we as a community, as we, get, as we scatter from this place and we go out into our neighborhoods, into our networks, into the relationships that you have given us, into our families, that this week we would live with this reality. That we are covered by your blood. That when you see us, you see Christ. I pray that would change the way that we live. Would change our relationships. It would give us hope each moment of every day. Thank you, God, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.